Hi everyone, I hope you're well. If you're watching this on Sunday, I hope you've remembered that the clocks went back at 2am and so you should have been able to sneak in an extra hour of sleep, unless of course you have young children when you've probably been up since 4am instead of 5am, in which case you have my deepest sympathies. Uh, if you didn't remember the clocks went back, why not treat yourself to an extra hour sleep tonight? We're going to be hearing from Steve in just a few moments as he continues our series in Hebrews with part seven. Uh, but before we move on to that, I just wanted to read from Psalm 98. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre in the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King of the Lord. At this time, it's uh, a bit different when we come together to worship, but uh, this encouragement to make a joyful noise to the Lord still stands. Uh, so no matter where you are um, or who you're with, uh, Let's just uh, try to remember to make that joyful noise this week when we uh, come to worship our Lord. Uh, I certainly don't have a lyre to hand or in fact a trumpet, but I do have a voice. Um, and although I might not be the greatest singer in the world, the Lord still loves to hear us making a joyful noise in worship of him. So now we are going to uh, hear from Steve. So without further ado, I'll hand over to him now morning Beacon Church. Yes this is week seven in our Hebrew series about Jesus is all and so far we along with the original audience we've already learned that Jesus truly is all in so many ways that as creator and heir he rules and reigns that he meets us in our troubles that he is where we find our confidence and our ultimate rest that he is where we find mercy and grace and that he pierces to the very soul and he brings life change and it's because of all that uh, that we need to not be lazy or satisfied with dipping our toe in the water of these truths as John was talking about last week we need to move from milk to meat um, we need to take Jesus very seriously as a result and to dive deeper to discover even more about him which is why the writer took that detour last week to make sure we understand this it's an easy temptation to say that my faith is childlike. I keep it simple. I'll leave the bigger stuff to the cleverer people than me. Um, actually, that, that's a bit of a cop-out. Um, a childlike faith is referring to the kind of trust we have in God as a child to a father. It's not about not deepening our understanding of who he is and how he operates. Because as we do, that is what will cement his promises in us and will strengthen the hope we find in him. Whenever 
you find your confidence in the now or your hope for the future wobbling, look to Jesus, know him more. And your ability to endure and your expectation for his involvement will only increase. Whenever you find your confidence for the now or your hope for the future wobbling, look to Jesus. And so here we come to one of the more difficult passages of this book or even of the Bible, pretty much. Um, slap bang in the middle of this sermon by post, the writer has pressed pause and he, he now focuses on those very promises of God that have been mentioned along the way. And he asks out loud, how can we really trust God's promises over us? What makes them so absolute? And instead of a flippant, well, he's God, isn't he? Uh, the writer at the end of chapter six and then through chapter seven, he walks us through an exploration of God's provision of temporary go-betweens, why they existed. And ultimately, we discover that once again, Jesus trumps this whole concept. He flips it upside down and proves that he is all. So first, there's going to be an unfolding of the nature of God's promises. Then there's going to be a history lesson before we land on that grand final conclusion. So let's journey with the author. We're going to look at four things. Um, we're going to look at God's perfect promises. We're going to look at this mysterious Melchizedek. We're going to then look at the Levitical legacy, the Levite priests, before we come to that final conclusion that once again, of course, Jesus is all. So, God's perfect promises. Jenny's going to read from verse 13 of chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So now, some people say, I swear on my mother's grave I didn't do this or I will do that. Or I swear on my life I've been good. Cross my heart. I'm not going to go into the rights and wrongs of those sayings right now, but there is an appeal there to something outside of the individual, something worthy of honour or respect or something bigger than yourself. Yet the writer here is pointing out the fact that God swears by himself. This is an immediate reminder that there is no higher authority. There is no possible expectation on God to have to assign honour or authority to another beside himself. There is none higher. And so when God speaks, things happen. What God says goes. What he promises, he holds to, and that cannot be undone. And so the author here is reminding his Jewish listeners that their forefather Abraham, he trusted God's ridiculous promise at the time that that elderly man and his wife, who physiologically they shouldn't have become parents, that they would be the source of a whole nation, Israel as we now know them. And so for us then the bible is saying that if we fled to god himself for refuge as it says in in verse 18 we who have fled for refuge 
we discover, verse 19, is we discover a steadfast anchor of the soul. The world's largest ship was known as the Noc Nevis, also known as the Sea Wise Giant, with clues in the name. Uh, it was half a kilometre long, weighed half a million tonnes, and its anchor alone weighed 36 tonnes, 36 tonnes of solid metal, which was sufficient to stop those half a million tonnes from drifting. And yet that is nothing compared to the anchor that we have in Jesus for our very eternal security. As we find refuge in him, we find that he is the one that stops us from drifting. And his promises are perfect and utterly unshifting. God's promises are perfect. So then we come to this mysterious Melchizedek. To back this up about God's promises, the writer turns his attention to this strange character from the book of Genesis. Uh, verse 19, it, it um, continues into verse 20. Uh, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is this guy? Why is he important? And why should we care about the priest in the first place? Well, for that, we need to understand the story. Now, here comes the bit of a history lesson. Bear with me. Remember, the Jewish audience of this letter, they already knew at least the basics of this. But we have a lot of catching up to do, us 21st century Brits. So trust me, it will make sense. Jenny's now going to read the first three verses of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first... By translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then he is also King of Salem, that is, King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So this is referring to a story that you can find in Genesis chapter 14, where Abraham, after fighting a coalition of local kings to rescue his nephew, he ends up with much plunder. He wins, gets loads of plunder, and he knows that God helped him. So then he meets this guy, Melchizedek, who, who actually comes to him. Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. King, Hebrew is Melech, and righteousness, the, the Hebrew is Zedek. Melech, Zedek, king of righteousness, Melchizedek. He's the king of righteousness, but he's also the king of Salem, which would later become Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Salem is just a derivative of the word shalom, which means peace. Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Who does that sound like? So we have echoes there of Jesus already. And further, the writer points out that in the Genesis 14 text, Melchizedek is without beginning or end. He has no genealogy in the text. That would have been normal at the time. Who's this Melchizedek? Well, he's the son of for example, we, uh, elsewhere in Genesis, you get Abraham, son of Terah, and Terah is the son of Nahor, and so on. Um, the lack of genealogy there is, is a narrative thing. It's not a literal thing. It's not saying that um, it, Melchizedek wasn't born and didn't die. It's just that there's no record of his birth or death in the text, and the writer is picking out the clue there that this is another echo. This guy is not Jesus. He's a human being. 
but is an echo of Jesus, the King of Righteousness, the King of Peace with no beginning or end. This is a clue. And he's also introduced as the Priest of God Most High. This Priest of God Most High, he blesses Abraham when he meets him with bread and wine, which in that culture represents sustenance and joy. So it's representative of God himself, the King of Righteousness and the King of Peace, blesses Abraham with sustenance and joy. It's his life, this is a life-giving moment. And in turn, Abraham gives him a tenth of his spoils from this great victory that God had enabled. Now to the Hebrews, the, the, there's an easy understanding that tithing, that giving 10% is not a duty, it's more a everything I have is yours, so let me honour you with it. And this very act that Abraham does, Abraham, this promised father of that nation and beyond, is honouring one who he considers even greater than he is. And so in verse 4 of chapter 7, continues, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Abraham is given divine blessing from and gives honour to Melchizedek as one who is greater than himself, this mediator between lowly man and holy God. Which then helps us uh, come to look at the Levitical legacy, the Levite priest, because we can fast forward from that historical moment to the nation that God had already promised Abraham we would become the father of. And within that people, the Jews, God was still enabling a means to honour him the right way, to make sacrifice for sins and to receive forgiveness and blessing. And these priests, like Melchizedek, uh, long before them, they act as go-betweens, as mediators, as representatives of the most high God. But even this system was never perfect still. They're human men who came and went, and most of them we don't even know their names. We know some, most of them we don't. Um, they were agents. They weren't the be-all and end-all. They were intermediaries. They were to provide a means of forgiveness through a sacrificial system, atoning for our sins, but it was representative and it was temporary. They personally never sacrificed themselves on behalf of others. No man could ever make up for the sins of another. A cosmic sickness needs a cosmic solution. But what all this is doing is leading to one single solution that would be enough to cover all of our brokenness, both past, present and future. This is all wrapped up in the same thing. So we see God's perfect promises. We've looked at mysterious Melchizedek. We've looked at the Levitical legacy. Now by now, us 21st century Brits, we might have our heads spinning by now. Don't worry if you do. Let's take a breath. Let's just work backwards for a minute. As a fallen race, our relationship with holy God has broken down. And so we need a broker. We need a go-between to enable any hope for honour in one direction and blessing in the other. And this is where we discover that Jesus is all. Because God had made a provision through the Levitical priesthood because of this problem. And the, the Levites, they were a bloodline from Moses' brother Aaron, descended from Levi specifically. You couldn't be a priest if your genealogy was otherwise. And Levi and the rest of Israel, they all trace back to Abraham. And this Abraham, the father of the Jews, he gives honour to Melchizedek and receives blessing from him. Even Abraham considers Melchizedek more worthy and higher than himself. 
You've got the Levites who trace back to their great father Abraham, but even Abraham himself considers Melchizedek more worthy and higher than himself. And yet here we discover someone else even trumps Melchizedek. Have a guess who? Jenny's going to read from verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 7. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So here this passage then proves itself that Jesus, being God himself, resides in the power of an indestructible life in God's guaranteed promise keeping. And so as fully God and fully man, he's the only one who could be ever, ever worthy of fully representing God himself because he is fully God, bestowing mercy and forgiveness and is the only one who could pass on unhindered perfect sacrifice on behalf of man because he is also fully man. What better intermediary to fulfil the cause than the only one who satisfies both ends of the relationship breakdown? Jesus is all. I know it's been a bit whistle-stop, but just wrapping up, just for the sake of time, what have we learned? We've learned that God's promises are absolutely reliable in Jesus, like a cosmic anchor, immovable and trustworthy. And we can know that because... Like the prototypes that God placed in Jewish history to point the way of Melchizedek and the subsequent Levite priests who acted as representatives of God, agents of his mercy and pointers to his rescue, that Jesus once again takes that highest position as eternal God and the perfect intermediary. It's like a trailer for a movie. I went to see Tenet the other day at the cinema. Save our cinemas! Uh, it's a big movie. Now, I'd already been enjoying and wowed by the trailer. That was an exciting two minutes. Go and check it out. It's a good trailer. But that was nothing compared to what it had teased and what it had promised when I got to sit in that cinema for two and a half hours on the edge of my seat. I was thrilled and wowed in a way that even the exciting trailer could never fulfil. That trailer is wonderful, but it's nothing compared to the real thing. And the same here, Melchizedek and the priests, uh, they were always a signpost to something, to someone far greater to come. If you want to know how to honour God for all he is, turn to Jesus. If you recognise your need for forgiveness for the things you've done, they've been against God far more than they've ever been against yourself or against others. But you can know that you can turn to him now, confess your sins and know immediate release and the power to not walk that way again. It's all found 
in Jesus. If you're unsecure uh, and, and, and concerned about the security of your salvation, know that Jesus can save you to the uttermost, as it says in verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. You can find that uttermost secure salvation in Jesus, as John was, of course, reminding yourself last week. If you even struggle with prayer, know this. But because of Jesus, our prayers are hand-delivered to the Father by God himself. Because of Jesus, our feeble human efforts at conversing with the never-began creator, our feeble attempts, just they get whispered in his ear and they get received with joy. No longer are we without that kind of access. No longer do we even need to rely on another human to represent God for us or represent us to God. Our representative is God. God himself. Jesus brings heaven to us and brings us to heaven. The one whose promises will never wear out, will never come undone. That anchor against the strongest of currents. He stands between us and God forever. We are his and he is ours. Be blessed and enjoy knowing him more. Thanks, Steve. If any of those things struck a chord with you uh, or you want to explore them further, then please do uh, reach out to a friend or uh, someone from the church or get in touch with, uh, through the contact details that will come up at the end. Uh, there are plenty of people who would love to talk and pray through these things with you uh, and help you to explore it further. That's all from me. I pray that you will have a blessed week this week and I'll see you all again soon. God bless.